Well, good morning, LCM. It's November 5th, 2023. We live in remarkable times. Today's message will be titled The Itai Doctrine. As we get started today, I want to draw your attention to something that I think will bless you. The Arising Church is doing something special during this season. They're teaching through the Book of Romans every Wednesday night. They've instituted a midweek service just to reverence the Word of God. The series that they're in works through every chapter of the Book of Romans, and they've titled it The Israel-Dependent Gospel and the Gentile Inclusion. I'm genuinely proud of the work that they're doing in this season. And while we are not teaching a foundations class for the holidays at this moment, I highly recommend that everybody in this room listen to that series and work hard to follow along in your personal studies. It will bless you and it will bless them to know that we're acting like one body filled with one spirit working towards one kingdom. Speaking of ongoing teachings... Last Sunday, pastors Nick, Judah, and Peyton taught a message called Unapologetic Zionist. What an incredible message that was. Yes. Then on Thursday, Rob, Assad, and Bim taught a message called Unwavering Loyalty. Today, we are going to begin our message called The Itai Doctrine by reviewing some of the key points that overlap in those messages. One of the most tragic problems in Christendom is that genuine believers have approached the redemptive plan of God absolutely from the wrong end of the book. What I mean is that the average Christian learns about Jesus as the Savior of the world a very long time before that same believer realizes that he is the Savior of Israel first. This tragic error leads to an incredible distortion of the biblical story. And it results in handicapping those same believers from understanding the larger plan of God. The faith that results from this misunderstanding is often tainted with selfishness. There is significant error in it. And worst of all, there is often indifference to the actual aim and goal of God as stated in his Bible. If you want to make any serious progress in your understanding of the divine revelation that Adonai has laid out in his word from Genesis through Revelation, you actually have to start from the correct end of the book and start in Genesis and move to Revelation. It's impossible to understand the story in a backwards fashion. You see, most of us were taught that the book of Genesis concerns the creation of the world. The truth is that only two chapters of Genesis deal with that issue at all. Then Genesis 3 through 4 details the fall of the human race from the will of God. Genesis 5 through 9 go on to teach about the destructive nature of sin in the world and begins to identify a family that will produce the, the kind of world that Adonai wants. The last 40 chapters. How many? 40 chapters. Four-fifths of the first book of the Bible are about the calling of the family of Israel to bring about the redemption of that creation. Genesis is not as much about the creation of the world as it is about the creation and redemption of Israel that will save the world. Before Brother Treister moves any further, 
I want you to reflect on something. That is not what you learned in your Christian education. That is not what you learned in your Sunday school with your flannel boards. You were taught that Genesis is about the creation of the world. Two chapters refer to the creation of the world, and more than 40 chapters refer to the creation of Israel because the Bible is dependent upon God's promise to Israel for the redemption of the creation. That is a central theme today that you will have to grasp. And you need to start by acknowledging that is not where you started in Christianity because you started from the wrong end of the book. We want to show you a slide. As we've stated, the beginning of the Bible opens up with the creation of the man, the land, and the plan and contains God's covenant to those three parties. Genesis 12, 1 through 7. God identifies the man that he will make his covenant with. It says, the Lord had said to Abram. In the next statement, God identifies the land in which he would make his covenant with. Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. To your offspring, I give this land. And God thirdly identifies his plan for that man and that land. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Do you hear that last line? All peoples on earth will be blessed instead of you? No. All peoples on earth will replace you in this blessing? No. All peoples on earth will be blessed through who? You. See... God blesses the people, but he does it through Israel. You see, every nation in history since Genesis 12 can be evaluated based on how they treated this divine revelation. God chose Abraham to be the man that he would birth his nation through. God chose the land that he would give to the man and his descendants to be their, their everlasting possession. And God laid out the plan for all humanity based on their relationship to his covenant with the chosen man and their intrinsic, inseparable link to the chosen land. All human history can be summed up to each nation's relationship to this three-party covenant. When Egypt chose to curse the man's descendants by subjugating them, refusing to allow them to enter their promised land, and continue on their God-directed plan. God destroyed the firstborn men of Egypt. He made their land desolate just as it remains today. And he refused to allow their plans to succeed. The same is true about Assyria. Their men, their land, and their plans are lying in the boneyard of human history. Where is Babylon? Their men, their land... Their plans are in the boneyard of human history. The Greeks, the Romans, the Nazis, and every other satanic manifestation of Islam all find their men, their lands, and plan gone. But the man Abraham and his but descendants. But the man Abraham. But the man Abraham and his descendants. The land of Israel and the plan of God live, live. today. Yeah. 
Am Yisrael Chai. Because God said that they would continue for eternity as a three-party covenant forever. How long? The Bible begins with a three-party covenant between the people of Israel, the actual land of Israel, and God. Three parties to the one covenant. This is God's plan for salvation of the world. But it begins with his promise to Israel. There is no other nation on the planet that that is true of. I want you to remember David's words. We're going to read 2 Samuel 7, 22 together. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you. And there is no God besides you. According to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel? You ready for it? The one nation. The one nation. Nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people. Let me read it again for you. The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people. God will be represented in all of the nations. Individuals from every nation in the world will be saved. But there is one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people as a nation. Look at the next line. Making himself a great name. Why did God do it? To make God's name great in the eyes of the world. It's about God's name and not about the nation. But God chose the nation. Making himself a great name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt... A nation and its gods. And you established for yourself. Why did God do it? For himself. Your people Israel. To be your people for a few weeks. To be your people until the political winds change. To be your people until there is a protest in Washington D.C. To be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. God's name is attached to the land and the people of Israel because God made the attachment. The three-party covenant was restated throughout the book of Genesis. If we began at the correct end of our Bibles, this would not seem like a mystery and would not be new to anybody in this room. We're going to repeat a few slides for you to help you get this. We've now moved from Genesis 12 to Genesis 15. It was hard to skip Genesis 13, but we have time limits. In Genesis 15, 4 through 7, the man is identified again. The word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir. Ishmael will not be your heir. Uh, Eleazar will not be your heir. But a son coming from your own body will be your heir. The promise made to this man had to do with genetic descendants that would walk in his faith. Then it moves to the land again. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land. 
to take possession of it. Israel would not be Israel if they were in Borneo. Israel would not be Israel if they were in another place. The people and the land are both parties to the same covenant with God. Then, the plan. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now, I could preach about this all day long, and I'm not going to, but I want to make a point for you. Can Abraham count them? Then the point of this promise was not about the quantitative analysis. It was not about actually numbering the stars because God said, if indeed you can count them. So the point was not to go, how many billion stars are there? Well, that's how many descendants I will have. It was to speak of an innumerable number of descendants. And more than that, he likened them to the stars. You need to think qualitative analysis. This is a promise. I know things are rough. I know you are having a hard time. I know you are wandering. I know it looks like the promises will not come true. I know you're going through many cycles of discipline and restoration. But your children will be in quality like the stars of the heavens. Somebody say hallelujah for that. Anybody in here ever raise a teenager? It will either kill you or it will perfect you. And the truth is it will kill you, resurrect you, which perfects you. That is what this promise is about. The three-party covenant between Adonai, the people of Israel, and the land of Israel would be a forever covenant for the redemption of Israel and the world. In that order. The basis of salvation by faith. How many of you know that we are credited with righteousness? Where did you get that idea? It's from Genesis 15, 6. The man who God spoke to about the land and about the plan believed God. And God credited him with righteousness. It is no mistake that faith by credited righteousness is expressed in the very same passage As the man, the land, and the plan. And it is reiterated throughout Genesis because this is the basis of all salvation. Not just faith that credits you righteousness. Faith that God said to a man and land that there would be a plan to redeem his nation and through that nation, the world. That is what credits us with righteousness. The plan of God to redeem the globe begins with Israel as a people and Israel as a geographical place on earth. The promise was to be transmitted through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who was called Israel. The promise was not given to any other nation or any other people. Every nation and every people on earth has a very important choice. They can either agree with God's plan and his method of redemption, or they can fight against it, trying to invent their own plan and method of salvation. Genesis is the beginning of the revelation of God. You cannot skip to the end of the book and think you understand what is being said. This is the foundation of our faith. Nobody has the right to amend it. 
Nobody has the right to change it. I don't care what their degrees are or what seminary they come from or what denomination they're so proud of. This is where God started in his book. Now, as you heard in 2 Samuel 7, 23, this is about God's name. I want to get that very clear. This is about God's name. When you quote the first commandment, you say you shall have no gods besides me. The actual command, commandment is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, you shall have no gods besides me. God's identifier is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who brought Israel out of Egypt. He is, look, you can argue with me all day long about how to enunciate the divine name of God. You know what's more important? To know that God has linked his name to a specific people, a specific land, and a plan that is to be carried out. So I don't care how you fight to pronounce his name. I care whether or not you know what that name stands for. You see, many of us grew up reading Romans 4 and thinking about that credited righteousness as just being faith in general. And... Just being faith in the Messiah. When in fact Paul is drawing from Abraham's faith. Which is the man, the land, and the plan. Paul is telling you that you are grafted in by having the same faith in the man, the land, and the plan. And that credits you the same righteousness as Abraham. Because you are joining in. We're going to look at one more slide among many that we will have today. And it's because... This plan was laid out in detail repetitiously in the first book of the Bible for a reason. Understand that these are not just talking points. This is not just something that we are using so we can get to the Newer Testament and explain what this is saying. The Bible repetitiously repeats this. We only chose three. Go look at what God promised to Isaac on top of Abraham. Go look at what God promised to Jacob on top of what he said to Abraham. It is over and over and over as if God is telling everyone in the world and the universe and the powers above, I have one plan for the earth and this is how I will carry it out. How prevalent is it, Justin? It is so prevalent that it took 40 chapters to do it. Genesis 17, verse Two through eight, the third occurrence that we chose. God says to the man, I will confirm my covenant. I made the covenant to you. Now I'm going to confirm it as the sovereign entity of all the universe. I will confirm it. Not only between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. This will go on into perpetuity. Then he says about the land. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, where you are presently an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. It is going to become yours, and I will be your God. According to the plan, he says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant, one that doesn't change under any circumstances between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. Do you hear an end to that? No. No. Haba, to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The plan is unalterable. It is never 
never and will never change because the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has attached his name to the promise forever and he does not change. Every time you hear about a two-state solution, boo! Understand that this disagrees with what God has said. Pastor Eric didn't mention it when he read from Genesis 15 because there's a lot to get to today. Yeah. But the biblical borders of Israel are laid out in Genesis 15, 18 through 21, and they comprise a region that stretches from the Euphrates in Iraq, which we've seen, and the Nile in Egypt, which we've seen. Those boundaries were determined by God and recorded in the Bible. There is no other nation on the planet that has the borders of their country and the title deed to their land described this way as a grant and a gift from God. I want to I wanna get that for just a second. I love the United States, but yeah. its title deed is not recorded in the Bible. Its boundaries are not recorded in the Bible. We have sweet Nigerians here today. In fact, a bunch of them. Yeah. And you know what? Nigeria's boundaries are not recorded in the Bible. The Bible is not their title deed. We have Colombians here today. In fact, we have more than 23 nations in this room right now. And you know what? None of your nations were defined in the Bible and the title deed to the land that your nation occupies given by God in the Bible. Only one nation can make that claim. Understand that the Bibles that are in your lap, the Bibles that you have wept over, the Bibles that have fed you, the Bibles that have blessed you, the Bibles that have spoken to you words of life and revelation, they declare, that Bible declares that the rough area that is determined by God that Israel would possess is 300,000 square miles or about the size of Texas. Actually a little bigger than Texas. Don't let that hurt your ego, Texans. <laughs> what you should know though is that the land they possess today is about 8,500 square miles or roughly 2% or it's about the size of New Jersey. Not Chris Christie, just New Jersey. <laughs> Friends, when God lays out a plan and attaches his name to it, our job is to stand with God and his plan. That means standing with the man, his people, standing with the land that they are promised, and standing with the entire plan of God that results in their redemption. There are many things that I want to tell you, and I, if we had unlimited time, I would. Time's not going to permit us to deal with a great many of them. For instance, the land itself, somebody say the land, the land. is a self-correcting measure within the three-party covenant. Whenever Israel as a people veers off course, the land disciplines them by spitting them out. And, somebody say and. and. Every time that that is predicted or it happened in history, Adonai promises to cause the people of Israel to repent and come back to the land. When they do, the land becomes fruitful. When they're out of the land, the land is not fruitful. God uses the land as a party to the covenant to teach the people. This is because God has foreknown and predestined Israel and the land of Israel to be redeemed and bless the nations who receive his plan. 
Let's move on to the prophets and examine what God says will happen and why it will happen. Is that okay? This passage is taking place during one of the periods in Israel's history that they had substantially veered from his will. Nobody is saying that Israel never veers from God's will. We're saying that just like your teenager, they are God's son and he knows their destiny. He has declared it and he will bring them to that destiny and it is our job to stand with it. This passage is taking place during the Babylonian captivity. We're going to pick up in Ezekiel 36, 21. But I had concern for my holy name. Where is God's concern? For his holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. I want you to consider that God considers his own name at stake when speaking about the man, the land, and the plan for Israel's redemption. It is God who says his name out of concern for my name. I'm going to do something. God's name is attached to these promises. Skip down to verse 24 and we're going to have a good time for a minute. Do you want to learn? Would you rather be a myopic Christian that does not begin to understand the Bible and quotes every New Testament verse out of its larger context? I'm glad to hear that because we're not going to give you a choice. If you are here, you're going to grow. And these are things you're going to grow in. Ezekiel 36, 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all countries and bring you into your own land. Who said that? God did. And he said, I will. There's no if there. I will. Watch verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Ezekiel 36 lays out the guilt of Israel. It lays out the atonement of Israel and the predestined plan for the future of Israel. Eight times here, God says, I will. Regardless of what they do, it is what God will do. He says, I will take you out from the nations. I will sprinkle you with clean water. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. Twice, he says, I will put my spirit within you. I will remove from you a heart of stone. I will be your God. He said that while Israel was being disobedient and while they were out of the land. Because the circumstances do not change what God has said he will cause to happen. The plan of God and our fidelity to that plan is not based on the performance of Israel. It is based on the name of God and his ability to do what he has promised to do. That's a huge point that you have to get. It is not based on whether B.B. 
does what we think he should do or what God thinks he should do. It is based on what God says he will do in the nation. And we stand with God's destiny because he declared it in his written word. See, if you're like me, Ezekiel 36 had an impact on your life. And you thought, wow, this is incredible. This is about me. God spoke this passage about me and I've experienced it. Hey, then you and those black Hebrew Israelites and those Mormons and everyone who has wanted to replace Israel need to skedaddle to the Babylonian captivity and subject yourself to it for 70 years. And then maybe it was about you. But if you weren't in the Holocaust, you weren't in the Babylonian captivity and you didn't march through the Red Sea, then how dare you say it's about you and not them? Sorry, I interrupted no. you. No further comment needed. I'm happy. I'm happy to teach with a student that has become a peer and not only a peer, one that has excelled beyond me. This is what happens when we take the word of God seriously. Amen. And I'll try not to interrupt you again. Feel no concern. Feel well, no concern. church is a place for repentance. So if I just lied, I'll <laughs> repent again. Yeah. Look, there's something you need to understand, that in our day and time, commentators love to postulate about the battle of Gog and Magog. Powder, powder puff prophets pandering their own personal prophecy collections for a prophet. And yet, some of them might be right. Most of them are probably wrong. Yes. And yet, most of them miss the pashat of what Ezekiel 39 is trying to convey. They want you to read their books as if they have some new knowledge about God's redemptive plan, but they miss the Peshat of what God so plainly says. We're gonna show you what is in the Peshat regarding God's name and the result of, all of the battle to end all battles. This comes from Ezekiel 39, verse 25 through 29. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. Combined, all 12 tribes. And I will be jealous for my holy name. God chooses to demonstrate jealousy for his own name. How? By having mercy on the whole house of Israel whom he made a covenant with. They shall forget their shame and all the treachery they have practiced against me. When they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands. And through them. Not after them. Through them. them. Through them have vindicated my holiness. Okay, y'all are dead silent, and that's okay. Maybe that's because it has stunned you. God says that it is through Israel that he will vindicate his own holiness. He is set apart. He is above. He is righteous in all he does. And since he has said this about Israel, and it has not looked true for thousands of years, he will vindicate himself in the eyes of the world through Israel. This is about God's name. 
Tell me something, Christian. Do you want to be jealous for God's holy name? Do you want to assist him in vindicating his holiness? Then you must do it in the way that he chooses to be jealous about his own holy name. And that is to be jealous about his plan for Israel. If you think we're crazy, if you think that we veered into some weird Jewish thing, and I've heard a lot of that, I don't pay any attention to it. So if your mouth is moving like that and I smile, it's because I've checked out. Just underline in your Bible, verse 27, contemplate it, and God will give you insight into it. The problem is the end of the book you started from. The problem is not with what we're expressing. And through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God. Because I sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them in their own land. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore. And I will not hide my face anymore from them. When, when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. The entire premise of these Peshat promises is based on God's desire to uphold, to protect, and to be jealous for his own holy name. He has chosen to bound his character with Israel forever. He has chosen to confine his own revelation to the world of who he is through his covenants with Israel. His name, his character, his attributes, and his reputation are the basis by which he swore his covenant to Abraham and his descendants, the land and the plan. Anytime, say anytime. Anytime. Anytime that one of these Three promises, the people, the land, and the plan. Anytime they're attacked from within Israel and without Israel, it is not an attack just on a nation or a people. It's an attack on God's name and his personal holiness. Say, but wait a minute. What if they're not doing something right? Okay. Well, if Carlos has a son who's not doing something right, and Carlos knows that he's called to be a world-shaking evangelist, this son, and because Carlos's son is not doing something right, I attack him, it is an attack on Carlos. It's an attack on what God has said to Carlos about the future. We're not saying that there's never a correction. We're not saying that there's not encouragement. We are not saying that we do not speak the life-giving promises, just the opposite. We do speak what God speaks about Israel. But to attack Israel is to attack the God of Israel. You see, my brother Rob, I know him intimately. I know the areas that he needs to grow. He knows the areas I need to grow. We are working together because we love each other. But the moment that someone outside of my team comes to me and says that Rob is a failure and the plan of God is never going to occur for him is the moment that we are going to lock horns and you're going to find out why I don't pay for health insurance. I love saying that. That's how God feels about his son, Israel. He even goes so far to say in verse 27 that he is going to personally vindicate his own holiness by vindicating Israel. Because they are one and the same. His holiness and Israel are one and the same. He is going to vindicate his name through them and in the sight of many nations. Because that is the revelation to the world, what he does through Israel. The only way for this to be done 
is by being faithful to his name and his covenant by bringing all promised descendants of the man Abraham back to the promised land forever. My friends, the repatriation of Israel in 1948 is definitely the start of progress in this endeavor. But as we sit here today, this prophecy is not and has not been fulfilled in entirety. If half of the world's Jews, half of the world's Jews are living in New York City currently, then this promise has not been completed. Even if there was one Jew living somewhere in Bulgaria or Turkey or even Iran or anywhere else in the world, then that means that this, promises, this promise hasn't been fulfilled. I could go on to tell you that Israel is the apple of God's eye. I could also tell you anytime a direction is given in the Bible, say like Isaiah 43, 5 through 6, that direction is always in reference to Israel because they are the center of the world and the center of God's redemptive plan. I could go on to tell you those things, but I'm not. We're 36 minutes into a message and have a lot to share with you. Do you all want to learn? Yes. Exodus is called Shemot in Hebrew because it is the story of God's people leaving the land and being enslaved in Egypt. This was an obvious attack on God's plan. Shemot means these are the names. Because God wanted the world to know that he knew the name of every Israelite going into captivity. And that, for the sake of his name and plan, he would bring them out of that captivity. The book of Numbers is about the journey of Israel up to the borders of the land that is a party to the covenant. Then the book of Deuteronomy is a retelling of the law just prior to Israel's entry in the land. And I want to show you something that Moses prophesied in advance of their entry into the land. We're going to be in Deuteronomy 30. I'm going to read you 10 verses from it, but you can take it. Somebody say, I want it. I want it. Well, you're going to get it. Deuteronomy 30 verse 1. And when. Somebody say when. when. And when all these things come upon you. The blessing and the curse. Which I have set before you. And you call them to mind among all the nations. Where the Lord your God has. Somebody say has. Has, has driven you. Before they even go into the land. Moses is prophesying about Blessings and curses falling on them and them being driven from the land has his past tense. And when these things happen and your God has driven you. See, these things have not caught God by surprise. He is not just reacting and we don't need reactionary theology. We need to understand that God said these things in advance the same way that when you have a child and you tell everybody they're such an angel and they're perfect you know good and well they're a little devil and that it's your job to turn them into what you say they will be it is your job to discipline them it is your job but that is always with hope and always towards a destiny God has driven you and is and return to the Lord your God, you and your children and obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If you're outcast, in the uttermost parts of heaven. And there 
the Lord your God, from there, the Lord your God will gather you. And from there, he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you to the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. You ready for verse 8? Remember, this is before they've even gone in the land. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord. It sounds like God knew in advance that there would be long time periods where Israel would not obey the voice of the Lord. But because of what he was going to do, they will again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all of the commandments that I command you today. This is very much like Jesus looking at Peter and saying, and when you have returned. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hands, in the fruit of your womb, in the fruit of the cattle, and in the fruit of the ground. For the Lord will... For the Lord will... Again, take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers. When you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in the book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God. They are standing with Moses. They have not gone into the land yet. They have not yet stumbled in the land. And their stumble is prophesied and the recovery is prophesied. Do you know what you call that? Foreknown and predestined. When you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. Look, the Lord disciplines every son that he loves. But this is his son. The disobedience of Israel has not and never will disqualify the national destiny of Israel. Adonai has attached his name to the people, the place, and the plan of redemption. When discipline occurs, it is to shape the elect nation so that they will reach their foreknown and predestined outcome that God has declared. There have been many cycles of exile and cycles of return, but none of those cycles alter the promise that God has tied to his very own name. YHWH will redeem his nation and do it in the land that he gave them. This is the aim and the goal of the redemptive plan of God. Amen. The fact that Gentiles can be included in this plan does not change the original intention of the plan. The fact that some nations left Egypt with Israel in the Passover does not change the fact that it was Israel's Passover in redemption. The fact that there are more Gentiles following the Jewish Messiah today does not alter the irrevocable calling of the entire nation that will be ruled by the son of David. All attempts to redefine Israel or replace Israel, well, those attempts are born out of abject faithlessness and they are an offense to the very name of God they need to be repented from. God himself will show himself holy through Israel as he completes his promise to the patriarchs in the land of Israel, which is the redemptive 
plan of God laid out from the beginning of the Bible, and you're going to see it holds true all the way to the end. So far, here are two things that you should have gleaned from this message at this point. We put it on a slide for you to make it easy so you can take pictures and remember it. The redemptive plan of God is dependent upon the existence of the people of Israel and their salvation in the land of Israel. Number two, the name of God, meaning his reputation, his character, and his attributes are bound to the promises made regarding the people, place, and plan laid out in the Tanakh and the Berich Hadashah, the Newer Testament. For those of you who think that the cross changed any aspect of these two truths, we invite you to further study because you could not be more wrong. Worse yet, you have failed to understand the nature of Yeshua, the Jewish Messiah himself. He is the living, breathing Tanakh, the living and breathing word of God. And these promises are foundational to the word. They are foundational to the Messiah as displayed in all 66 books of the Bible. Okay, I, I can't help it. I'm going to jump in on that. So I'll have to repent again for interrupting Justin. I shouldn't have to do this, but I have to do it. Believers that don't understand the Tanakh, you cannot understand the Newer Testament. That problem has given rise to ridiculous assertions and doctrines. They appropriate God's promises to Israel and make them apply to every other person in the world except Israel. I want to get something straight. Any promise that a Gentile believes belongs to him belong to the nation of Israel first. And if it does not belong to the nation of Israel, then there is no way that it can belong to you. I want to show you a slide. Israel is foreknown. Okay, for all you Calvinists out there, I'm not going through all five points because we shouldn't have to. Let's read Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. By the way, that nation is Israel. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Brothers. Brothers, brother Israelites, and those, those Jews that he predestined, he also called. Those he called, those Jews he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So how do you know that he's speaking of Israel there? Well, I know it from the whole context of the Bible, but thankfully there's Romans 11, 1 and 2 as well. I ask then, did God reject his people, Israel? By no means. Hal halal. In Hebrew, that would be hell no. The Greek says something else. And maybe you, sweet little Christians, could go, oh, heaven forbid. I am an Israelite myself. A descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. It is shocking that Christians don't make this connection. We all love Romans 8, 28 through 30. But those words were penned in reference to the man, the land, and the plan of salvation for the nation of Israel. Paul even identifies Israel as the foreknown nation in Romans 11:2. The very specific wording of Paul's statement is actually in reference to the lives of the patriarchs. Look at the patriarchs in Genesis in relation to Romans 8:30. It was Abraham who was predestined to become a blessing to the whole planet. It was Isaac 
who is promise is the promised son called forth from barrenness to fulfill the promises of Israel. It is Jacob who was justified by his trust in Adonai and his name is transformed to Israel. It is Joseph who was rejected by his brothers but glorified by God as their savior and the savior of the world. Paul chose that wording from the history of the foreknown nation. Various branches of theology miss these points because they have lost the whole foundation for the Newer Testament they claim to love. The foundation upon which the Newer Testament stands is the Tanakh. The Tanakh begins with the predestination of Israel as a nation to be redeemed and then to bless the world. You know, Pastor Eric, I grew up with some really wrong views in this area. I loved to read systematic theologies influenced by people that didn't understand the national destiny of Israel. I, remember. I loved reformed theology with everything in me. And I did not understand Romans 9, and it was one of my proof texts for Calvinism. But let's look at Romans 9, how it's intended to be understood. It's intended to be understood as relating to national destinies. You see, in Romans 9, 7, it mentions Abraham and Isaac. They are mentioned, and it is through Isaac that the offspring are reckoned, as opposed to Ishmael. In Romans 9, 10 through 13, just following down in the, in the chapter, Esau and Jacob are mentioned. These are heads of two nations, Edom and Israel. Israel is elect, and Edom is not. If you go further in the chapter, in verse 17, Pharaoh is mentioned. He's the head of Egypt, and he's raised up for the purpose of displaying, of proving the election and salvation of Israel. The point of this chapter is that nations have destinies, people have choices. Israel is foreknown, predestined to be saved as a nation. This is the promise of the Tanakh, and it is what Paul is referencing. But contrary to popular belief, Paul is not the great captain of Calvinism, as so many have made him out to be. The truth is that Paul is reiterating the man, the land, and the plan that details the national destiny of Israel. It was devastating for Jewish believers in Messiah to see so many of their countrymen veering from the will of God and the plan of redemption. But Paul's entire point is that the hope of Israel is still guaranteed for Israel during the time of stumbling. In fact, in Hebrew, to say Israel is chosen is the verb bachar, which means to choose. It means to test. It means to examine. It means to prefer. And it means preferable in the Tanakh. The people of Israel represent his chosen, tested, examined, and preferred people. Unfortunately, the Newer Testament was not preserved in the Hebrew text. And what we currently have are Greek manuscripts. But I want to show you this same word, the same Greek word that is a cognate for Bachar in the Greek manuscript for 1 Chronicles 16.13. The word you see on your screen is the Greek word. 1588. In the Greek copy of the Tanakh, in this passage, talking about the descendants of Jacob, it says, The seed of Israel, his servants, the sons of Jacob, his Bachar, or his Greek 1588 in the Septuagint. 
The Jewish writers of the Septuagint chose to use the Greek word 1588 to convey the term Bechar from the Hebrew Tanakh. The Greek word 1588 is eklektos. Eklektos. Somebody say that. Eklektos. Now you could go to some other church, they give you a donut and a Coke, you drop some money in the plate and you go home and have a nice day. You can participate in that kind of circus idolatry if you want. You're here because God wants you to learn. He wants you to grow. He wants you to understand and become wise in the salvation you have. What Justin just said may not mean much to the average person listening to us, but it should. Christians who have approached salvation from the wrong end of the book often get confused about who the electos are. The electos are and always have been the people of Israel who will inherit the land of Israel as they participate in the plan of salvation for Israel. The people, the only people ever called electos in the Tanakh are the seed of Israel and the seed of Jacob. They are the chosen or the elect people who God promised these things to and staked his own name on it. Let me show you what I mean in a few newer Testament passages. And I'm sure we can fight about them all day long afterwards. And it's okay because I like to win and you will lose. I want you to plug in the word Israel here. Ephesians 1.4. All of these, I put the Greek words in the slide for you. They're all versions of eklektos. For he chose Israel, us, in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us, Israel, to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. You play that out through the whole chapter and you will see Paul moves to Gentile graft ends. But it is Israel that he is talking about being chosen and elect. 2 Timothy 2.8. Remember Jesus Christ. Raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. And, but God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of Israel. That they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Romans eleven twenty eight. 28, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as Israel, the electos is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. Yeah. I could spend the rest of our time illustrating this. But this stuff is found in our Chronicles teaching. It's found in our Jeremiah's teaching and many other of our foundational studies. We don't have time to do it. But the only nation in the Bible that is actually foreknown and predestined to be saved is Israel. The fact that some of us feel that way, like we were chosen in special ways, may be a work of grace, but it's not what the gospel actually says. Israel was chosen. You were a mysterious inclusion. So let's restate two things that you should understand as foundational to the Tanakh. And now, see in the Newer Testament... And the Newer Testament does not abrogate it, does not change it, does not amend it in any way. Number one, the redemptive plan of God is dependent upon the existence of the people Israel and their salvation in the land of Israel. You have to have gleaned that from what we've shared so far. He promised to save every one of them in that land at some point in the future. If they're not around or they're not in that land, that cannot happen. Number two, the name of God. 
meaning his reputation, his character, and his attributes, are bound to the promises made regarding the people, place, and plan laid out in the Tanakh in the Newer Testament. To put that in our vernacular, it would be like saying, my name is not Eric Stevens if I don't do this. See, that's what that's like. He has staked his very name on it and done it repeatedly. Come on. So let's deal with another problem that we often encounter. Do you want to do that? Yeah. Do you want to be prepared? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to tell you right up front. We didn't just jump on the Israel bandwagon. Okay? Uh, I have been teaching this since the early 90s. I first taught in Texas on the man, the land, and the plan after I had been here less than six months to a group that could not begin to understand what I was sharing. And that message is still recorded. In fact, when we came up with this song today, two men who love the Lord wrote this out of their heart. This is not a response to what we are seeing in the news. This is the overflow of our hearts because God has prepared us for the times that we now live in. The song we sang in worship today said, there is no God like the God of Israel. His promises stand and always will. There is no God like the God of Israel. His promises stand, they will never fail. There is an army rising up, whoa. We'll fight against all evil till the redemption of your people. We lay down our very lives, whoa. With no hesitation, we stand with your nation. That is not because we're watching CNN. That is because our God has been faithful to put us at the beginning of the book and show us the redemptive plan through the book. Yes. And we are living in this time prepared for it from decades ago because we have the answer to where we must stand. Okay, we're not jumping on a political bandwagon. And those of you who are watching... I want you to know we can prove what we're saying. For three decades, we've been saying this. This is not us supporting Nikki Haley. It's not us supporting somebody in the United States government or the United Nations. We stand with the name of God. So let's deal with this other Amen. problem. Justin, how can we know that the modern state of Israel is the same as the Israel the Bible speaks about? Well, I am so glad you asked. And you're going to be glad he asked too. See, earlier Pastor Eric read Deuteronomy 30, which predicted long periods where Israel would be outside of the land. However, Adonai promised that every time they experienced exile, that he would bring them back, and he has. In fact, let me read you Isaiah 66, verse 8. It says, who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. What you need to understand about this passage, if you read the chapter in its entirety... You will see that the Lord is promising the judgment of Israel's enemies and the future elevation of the city of Jerusalem and the land of Israel. In the middle of the passage, right in between those two subjects, judgment of Israel's enemies and future elevation, the word of the Lord to Israel is that after a lengthened time of exile and desolation, 
after a lengthened time of exile and desolation, the nation would be reborn and the time of gathering the people of Israel would commence. Also in this passage, it is mentioned that after the birth of the nation, say after, after the birth of the nation, labor pains would begin. Can you see that? From 130 AD until 1948, this passage was puzzling and it perplexed many Bible scholars because this statement seemed impossible because the Jews had been expelled from Israel for 18 centuries and there was no national, autonomous, and independent Jewish state in the land of Israel. Then, on May 14th, 1948, in one day, the in nation, one day, in one singular day, the nation of Israel was born. Who has heard of such a thing? And incidentally, labor pains followed after that birth. We want to read you an excerpt from the declaration that the first prime minister of Israel, David Ben-Gurion, made that day. Okay. This is not the entire declaration, and you should read the entire declaration. Yeah. We're going to show you excerpts. We wanted to read the whole thing, but we're at an hour and one minute, and we haven't gotten to our actual passage yet. Yeah. What we're attempting to do is show you the spirit in which Israel was declared a nation, and that it agrees with Isaiah. It, it agrees with the Bible. So if you think that it is all just political Zionism, I want you to hear the actual declaration that caused the Arab neighbors to go to war with Israel. The Declaration of 1948 by David Ben-Gurion. Eretz Israel was the birthplace of the Jewish people. Here, their spiritual, religious, and political identity was shaped. Here, they first attained to statehood, created cultural values of national and universal significance, and gave to the world the eternal book of books. That's in the opening line of the declaration about Israel being a state. We gave the world the eternal book of books. After being forcibly exiled from their land, the people kept faith with it throughout their dispersion. Well, we have the people and the place in the first two lines of the declaration. And never ceased to pray and hope for their return to it and for the restoration in it in their political freedom. Impelled by, the his, by this historic and traditional attachment... Jews strove in every successive generation to reestablish themselves in their ancient homeland. In recent decades, they returned in their masses. Pioneers, mapilim, immigrants coming to Eretz Israel in defiance of restrictive legislation. And defenders, they made deserts bloom. Come on! Revived the Hebrew language, built villages and towns, and created a thriving community controlling its own economy and culture. Loving peace, but knowing how to defend itself. Bringing the blessings of progress to all the country's inhabitants and aspiring towards independent nationhood. Notice that the opening lines of the declaration to the world draws attention to the eternal book of books. All of the promises of God this is drawing from. 
David Ben-Gurion appealed to the promises given by God that are contained in every Bible in this room. If Israel was just a political entity, why would the declaration appeal to the word of God? Because it's not a political entity. Notice that David Ben-Gurion spoke of the Jewish people keeping faith with the land of Israel in every successive generation. If Israel was just a political entity, why would the declaration appeal to the people of Israel and the land of Israel as defined in the book of Genesis promised to Abraham? It's because they're not a political entity. They don't call themselves that. They call themselves a Jewish state governed by the Torah. Notice that the declaration quotes the prophets and making the deserts of Israel bloom. If Israel was just a political entity, why would David Ben-Gurion had quoted the biblical prophets in his appeal? Look, we're going to read you a few more lines from this declaration. I just want to make a comment that the Israel of the Bible experienced political controversy during its day as well. During Absalom's rebellion or Jeroboam's splitting of the nation, some men may have doubted the legitimacy of the current state of Israel in their time. The thing is, is God did not. The idea that modern Israel is not the same people, place, and nation as the Bible, as the biblical Israel, ignores the fact that Jews could have settled anywhere. They were offered places in South America by the League of Nations. But the Jewish people said no. And they chose to contend for the one place on earth that Adonai gave them precisely because of the man, the land, and the plan. This is proof in and of itself that the modern state of Israel is legitimately the Israel of the Bible with all of the same blessings and all of the same problems. What we should do now is keep reading the declaration. And I'm going to ask you to rouse yourself for a second half of the message. Somebody yell hallelujah. Hallelujah. If you want to get out early and beat the Methodist to the latest buffet, feel free to do that. But we're going to charge to the gates of hell, learn to kick them down and stand on the promises of God. Hey, you got an extra hour last night. So give us that time. We've excerpted this to make it shorter. We had to, but the whole thing's beautiful. The state of Israel will be open for Jewish immigration and for the ingathering of the exiles. It will foster the development of the country for the benefit of all of its inhabitants. It will be based on freedom, justice, and peace as envisioned by the prophets of Israel. We appeal to the Jewish people throughout the diaspora to rally around Jews of Eretz Israel in the task of immigration and upbuilding to stand by them in the great struggle for the realization of the age-old dream. The redemption of Israel. I know people that think the United States Constitution was inspired. They're wrong. It was blessed, but not inspired. The United States Constitution comes nowhere close to the biblical accuracy of this short declaration. It mentions the the people, the place, and the plan, and sets the hope of the declaration on the redemption, not establishment, redemption of Israel. Next time somebody tells you that the Israel there is not the same as the Israel in the Bible, read them this declaration as a starting place. If that doesn't begin to crack the egg, they have a sinful problem in their heart that is causing their words. 
Notice that the declaration appeals to the freedom, justice, and peace envisioned by the prophets of Israel. If Israel was just a political entity, there would be no reason for David Ben-Gurion to have made this appeal. Notice that the declaration ends with a struggle for the realization of the age-old dream, the redemption of Israel. The people identified in Genesis are Jews. The place identified in Genesis is the land of Israel. The plan identified in Genesis is the redemption of Israel. The modern state of Israel passes all three biblical criteria laid out in Genesis. The declaration for the establishment of Israel is far more biblically centered than most pulpits today. If that's not enough for you, then consider that the enemy considers the modern state of Israel the same as the biblical state of Israel. The enemy has more faith in what God is doing right now than most Christians do. Yeah, let that sink in on you. From the moment that this declaration was made, Satan has worked tirelessly to destroy Israel. The only reason that he would do that is if he knew that the modern Israel is the biblical Israel attached to God's name. Let's take a minute and review the opposition to modern Israel and consider that it is identical to the opposition to biblical Israel in every sense. We're going to read to you Psalm 83 and we're going to start in verse 1. Verse 1 says, O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you who hate who? You. Who hate God have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people, Israel. And they consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. This was written approximately 1000 B.C., my friends, that's 3,000 years ago, about the state of global unification against the nation of Israel around the time of David. Today, the modern state of Israel, 3,000 years later, suffers the exact same type, the same manner, and the same intensity of hatred since the day it was born. From the day that the declaration was made by the people of Israel in the land of Israel to establish a state according to the plan of Israel, the nations have continually increased their planning and consulting one another and conspiring to wipe the modern state of Israel off of the map. When you hear things like, from the river to the sea, Palestine should be free understand that they mean that what they call Palestine, which is really Israel, should be free of Jews. This is no different than the cry of the Amalekites, the cry of the Philistines, the cry of the Edomites, and all of Israel's national enemies historically. In Washington, D.C. yesterday, the primary chant that was happening was, we rebel, Israel go to hell. 
That's quite a thing to say about the nation that God has attached his name to. That was happening in our capital yesterday. If we continue on to verse 5, it says, For they conspire with one accord. Against you, they make a covenant. Kind of something like the United Nations. They make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebal and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Ashur also has joined them. They are the strong arm or the military wing of the children of Lot. If you have a good Bible map, compare where these nations are in relation to the modern nations that vow to destroy Israel today. You will find there is no difference. This is further proof that the Israel of the Bible is the same in Satan's eyes as the Israel of today. The same hatred of the Israel of the Bible, of the God of the Bible, is the same hatred of Israel today and of God today. It is the same in its rhetoric, the same in its goal, and the same in its geographical locations on the map. Continuing in verse 9. Do to them as you did to Mid'an, as to Sisera and Yavin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. Many of their nobles like Orev and Zeev and all the princes like Ziva and Zalmunah, who said, let us take possession for ourselves. Let us take possession for ourselves of the pastors of God. The goal of all satanic hatred of Israel in the Bible is that the enemies of God would erase the man, take the land, and stop the plan of God. The very same goals are the aim of Hamas, Hezbollah, which means party of Allah, the PLO, the Muslim Brotherhood, and all of the sovereign nations surrounding Israel. Let us be clear to you today. No religious issue, no religious site, no human rights issue, no argument about who was in the land first should convince the astute Bible student that any of these arguments change the fact that the Israel of 3,000 years ago is the same as the Israel today. And the enemy knows it. We're going to take our time to lay this out for you. It's time to review with you again at least three things that you should have gleaned from this message so far. Number one. The redemptive plan of God is dependent upon the existence of the people of Israel and their salvation within the land of Israel. Number two, the name of God, meaning his reputation, his character, and attributes are bound to the promises he made regarding the people, place, and plan laid out in the Tanakh and the Newer Testament. The nation of Israel, three, in the Bible, and the nation of Israel in the world today are the same people, the same place, and have the same plan. So let me see if we can drive these points home for you in a special way. I'm going to do it by showing you a picture and then asking you a question. Yeah. This is sadly a picture of a transsexual, a she-male, a, a, a by definition confused individual, a man in a dress, leading a protest against Israel. Or more accurately put, 
a transsexual leading a rally in support of Hamas. Yes. Now, I happen to have been in the Gaza Strip. I've been to Israel 11 times and I was supposed to be there for my 12th time flying home yesterday. Additionally, I happen to have traveled extensively throughout the Middle East and the Muslim world. I can tell you with absolute personal certainty that in Gaza, this shemale would not last two hours. They would have thrown him off of a building head first, which at the dawn of the internet, they used to have those videos, or they would have beheaded him. Conversely, sadly, he would be protected and given liberty to express all of his views within Israel. The largest queer population in the Middle East is within Israel. That is because they value life and don't throw people off of buildings. Doesn't mean that they agree with it. It means that they do not commit acts of violence against people they disagree with. It's not sad that Israel is not violent. It is sad that a man in a dress who would be killed by Hamas but saved by Israel is actually against Israel and for Hamas. So I have a question for you. I told you I'd show you a picture. and This was not a small rally, by the way. And this is a very unique union that is going on in the world right now. So what does this man and the queer community have in common with Hamas? Because on the surface of things, these two groups have nothing in common. And Hamas would make quick work of everybody at this rally killing every single one of them. Yeah, the answer is more simple than you might think. And it's very telling. They both hate God. They hate the God of the Bible defined as the God of Israel. The queer community hates the God of Israel. They both need the plan of God laid out in the Bible to be proven false, unreliable, or inoperable for each of them to continue their own lives in the manner that they are currently living in. See, these two groups who are diametrically opposed to one another share the same unified goal to remove the name of Israel from the earth precisely because God's name is intrinsically linked to the state and people and land of Israel. They hate God and they hate the Bible. You can throw atheists in this group too. The only reason that they find some unity with each other is they need there to be no God, no promise as laid out in the Bible to continue living the way that they are living. Let me remind you of what Adonai says and what Satan and those filled with Satan, what they're trying to stop. I want to read it again so you don't miss it. Then we're going to keep moving. This is Ezekiel 39, 27. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God because I sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them in their own land. Why do queers and violent Hamas, which I think you could call faithful Muslims if you read the Quran, why do they have this in common? Because if they can stop this and they can 
Remove Israel, then God did not tell the truth and is a lesser God than other gods. That is what they are after. Now, does the queer in the dress, the she-male, the man-lady, man-lady, does he know that? No, he's just moved by a satanic power for that to be the case. Okay? When the one association speaks of unequivocal support for Israel... What we are saying is that we stand firmly and without wavering with the name of God and the promises of God to his people Israel. He is the author of his redemptive plan or the man, the land, and the plan. Our job is to tell the truth regardless of persecution or popularity. We stand with Israel because God has staked the holiness of his name. On the redemptive plan that Israel is the center of. You know, it's so easy living in Texas, this last bastion of freedom in the West, to have a diminished view of just how bad things are for the Jews around the world. I also want to show you a picture and then ask you a few questions. This poll was taken on October 18th and 19th. 2023, which was 11 to 12 days after the atrocities committed by Hamas. This poll was taken among 18 to 24-year-olds who are registered to vote who attend Harvard University. By the way, the same polls were taken in all major Ivy League universities around the nation, and they produced the same results. 11 to 12 days after... 48% of American university students who are tomorrow's professors, engineers, politicians, and hear me, even military officials, the future of America voted to side with Hamas, which means violence. The question is why? The answer is because of their open, blatant, and mindless hatred of the God of Israel and his holiness, and the knowledge that he will judge them for their wickedness. You need to understand something. When you see 48% siding with Hamas, you are seeing 48% that hate God so much that they are willing to support the murder, rape, molestation, kidnapping, beheading, and burning of Jewish fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers, grandfathers, grandmothers, and Holocaust survivors. They hate God so much that they're willing to support the murder of these people. Make make no mistake, the reason that they're willing to support this chaotic and despotic and satanic ideology is because this is exactly what they would do to the God of Israel if they had the power and the choice to do it. Again, there are many things that I'd like to talk to you about, and we're an hour and 22 minutes. And so I can't teach you in depth on these things. When you hear calls for proportionality, what would that mean? Would that mean that Israel should rape exactly as many women as Hamas just raped? They should behead exactly as many babies as were just beheaded? They should, should kidnap exactly as many people? Proportionality is a joke. What proportionality means is do not defeat evil. Okay, and it's sin. Drop it from your vocabulary. Let's 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 make one note. I would I could do this for an hour and a half. But if you still plan to send your children or your grandchildren to a university. 
You might be funding Satan's plan and agenda. And it may reveal your own innate idolatrous view of what success actually is. And you may value money in the kind of way that would make you take the mark of the beast rather than stand for the truth. But look, I don't have time to talk to you about that. And I've been doing it for more than 20 years. Justin and I stand with Israel because we stand with God and his plan. The title to our message was actually the Atai Doctrine. And we'd like to give you a practical means to stand on the convictions that you should now be forming. To set this up, the passage that you're about to encounter is taking place during a time of political unrest in Israel, in biblical Israel. God has appointed King David to rule the people. Now, David is not without his flaws. He's flawed as a king. He's flawed as a husband. He's flawed as a father. He's flawed as an Israelite believer. However, in spite of each of those flaws, he remains the king, the husband, the father, and the Israelite that God chose as a matter of election. He often needed correction, but the plan of God also required unwavering loyalty to his kingship because he was chosen by God himself. This is not dissimilar to Israel today. Let's pick up in the passage during David's difficult hour of uncertainty. We're going to be in 2 Samuel 15, verse 18. And all his servants passed by him, and all the Karathites, and all the Pelathites, and all the 600 Gittites, who had followed him from Gath, passed on before the king. Imagine that you were one of the 600 Gittites who had followed David from Gath. 600 of them. Why did you follow David? You had formerly been an enemy of God and of God's people. But now you had come to a revelation that the God of Israel and the people of Israel were the redemptive plan of God for the world. Why else would you follow him? Your interactions with the God of Israel, the King of Israel, and the plan for Israel had such a profound effect on you that you left your own gods, your own people, and your own place just to be a part of what Adonai was bringing about on the earth through his chosen nation, Israel. You know, come to think of it, I am staring at Gittites, aren't I? None of you in this room belong to the one nation on the planet that God redeems for himself. But you encountered 66 books breathed by God and authored by Israelis. They had such a profound effect in your life that in comparison to the darkness, hatred, slavery, and idolatry of your previous ways, you have left your idols, your people, and your place to walk in the footsteps of the son of David, who is the Jewish Messiah, Yeshua or Jesus. Those Gittites and you both know that Israel is not perfect, but they were chosen to bring about the perfection of the world. Would you want to replace Israel if you were one of those Gittites? Would you want to pretend that the Gittites were somehow mystically Israel? To tell you the truth, wouldn't you just be happy to be with Israel and a part of what the God of Israel was doing through Israel for the whole world? Wouldn't you? As we move through this passage, keep those thoughts in your mind. They're going to be important. 
Because the Ittai doctrine is a practical roadmap to our future. Verse 19. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king. For you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday. And shall I today make you wonder about with us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you. And may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. We understand. Ittai understands that Adonai chose a specific place, a specific people, a place, and a plan for the redemption of Israel and then the world. But this plan is full of uncertainty and unrevealed details. It's full of wondering. It's full of difficulty. In this passage, David is offering Ittai a blessing without following in his footsteps. He was willing to bless him without him following in David's footsteps. The initial attempt to stand with David caused David to want to bless him in this uncertain and difficult time for David and the nation of Israel. How many Christians today would take a blessing from the God of Israel, the King of Israel, and the people of Israel if it meant that they did not have to move into uncertain times full of uncertain details? Most. The answer is most. Notice that David is perplexed. He's, he's intrigued. He's perplexed as to why this foreigner would risk his safety, his security, and his own future. David is perplexed about why a man would wander about with us. And not just Ittai, he has all of his little ones with him. His family is there with him. Why would they wander about with us? The us in that sentence are the Jews loyal to God's plan during a time that many Jews were confused about God's plan. There was another king arising at that point, not the rightful king. This is what makes these foreigners the Gittites, so intriguing. They are not confused. They do not see things unclear. Even when many Israelis are confused about the rightful king of Israel. My friends, it is always perplexing when a person acts against their own self-interest because they're conscious of God and the blessings that come through the people of God. Answer this honestly. Has the Tanakh blessed your life? Has the Newer Testament, the Berit Chadashah, which is a Jewish book, blessed your life? Yes. Has the eternal book of books that David Ben-Gurion mentioned in the declaration blessed your life? Yes. Those things came to you through the nation of Israel. Every single author was Jewish, with the possible exception of Luke, but that's, that's a story for another day. <laughs> and, yeah. yeah. He was a Jew! Yeah. Don't you owe some loyalty to the God of Israel and the people of Israel to see the plan for Israel achieved? You heard testimonies from Assad and Kayla Thursday evening. Yeah. Jews will find it perplexing if you are willing to wander into the uncertainty of the future with them because you are conscious of God and the people of God that his plan is achieved through. We have a great question before us. Shall we accept a blessing from Israel without enduring with Israel during their trials? No. 
if you will, then there is nothing perplexing, intriguing, or worth envying in your life. By the way, that's the only reason the gospel came to you, is to, to intrigue and to perplex. However, if you refuse to be a person who accepts a blessing without enduring alongside the people that have blessed you, then you may be a person who arouses envy. Do you want to be a person that arouses envy in the nation of Israel? Verse 21. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord, as Yahweh lives, and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also your servant will be. I want you to know that my answer to the question Justin asked, the answer of the Stevens Gittite clan, the answer that I'm suggesting for LCM, the answer that I'm suggesting for the one association of churches, must become like Ittai's in three ways. First, he begins with, as Yahweh lives. See, it is my reverence for the name of God and his intrinsic link to Israel that is the first pillar of my own conviction. Adonai will show himself holy and vindicate the holiness of his own name through Israel. I will never back away from the defense of Adonai's name and promises to Israel because they are one in the same. The second, he says, as my Lord, the king lives. It is my reverence for the kingship of Yeshua as the king of the Jews. That is the second pillar of my conviction. Jesus will sit on David's throne and the 12 apostles will sit on thrones with him, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I cannot claim a love for Jesus without loving the first and primary group of people that form his kingdom. I will never back away from the promises made to the Jewish people because Jesus is their king. And my prayer is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. Specifically, he was standing in Israel as it is in heaven. My third phrase that stood out from Ittai that forms a conviction for me. There. Somebody say there. there. This church has been saying there when we get to passages for a very long time. Something like 23 years. There your servant will be. It is my desire to be in the plan of God at the place of God. The Bible describes, describes his throne in Jerusalem. That compels me to stand with the people he has chosen. Revelation names all 12 tribes present at that throne. And I cannot rest until the nation arrives at the destiny prescribed by the God of Israel. I will never back away from this conviction. Because of the three pillars found in Ittai's answer. This is at least in part the Ittai doctrine as the Stevens see it. And we invite you to that understanding. I want to restate what pastor just expressed as his own conviction, because I share the same conviction. And I think you should as well. 
the three pillars of the Etai doctrine. As the covenant name of God lives, it is out of reverence for the covenantal name of God that we support the promises of God to Israel. His name is linked to the promises that he has made. As my Lord the King lives, it is out of my reverence for Messiah that we support the promises of God to Israel. Jesus is the King of the Jews first and foremost. His kingship is linked to the destiny of the Jewish people. Thirdly, there also your servant will be. It is out of reverence for the covenant name of God and the Messiah that we are compelled to stand with the people of Israel and the physical land of Israel because they are the apple of his eye and the recipients of his promise. Let's move on to verse 22. And David said to Ittai, go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all his little ones who were with him his children, his family, Assad and Kayla. And all, where were they going? To joy and victory? All the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. Come on. And the king crossed the brook of Kidron. Get that. And all the people passed on toward the wilderness. To even begin to understand the beauty of David's response, you need to further grasp the response that Ittai gave David. Ittai could have received a blessing from David and simply gone back to his country. But for Ittai, that was not enough. Ittai understood himself to be in the presence of the people of God, fighting for the land of God in hopes for the plan of God. For Ittai, it was not enough to have this one light and momentary encounter. Ittai wanted to go all the way with them. If one, and I'm speaking to you Christians, if one encounter with David produces a blessing, how much more if Ittai and his people go all the way with David's people, all the way with David's land, all the way with David's, with God's plan for David, all the way through the suffering and the persecution and the wandering, all the way. That's an all the way blessing. Next, David urges Ittai to take his brothers and go back home. Ittai's response, which are the three pillars of the Ittai doctrine, effectually communicates to David and the people of Israel that Ittai and his brothers consider that David and his people are worth fighting for as brothers. I will not take my family home. You are my family because I have the same plan and I want to be the same people as you. He effectually communicates that David and his people's home are worth fighting for as if it were their own homes. I will not go back to my place. I will stand with you because I see us as having one destiny. And this is what makes David's response so beautiful. He says, go then, pass on. See, in English, this may not convey much. This may seem like he's saying, yeah, run along. Run along, little Ittai. Go on ahead, just march in front. But this is not what he's saying in Hebrew. What David says to Ittai is very well then, vayavor. The root of that verb 
is a var, which for you Hebrew students is the ayin veit resh. It means to pass through. What you need to know is that same root is also found in the word ivrei. Ivrei is the word for Hebrew. Like a Hebrew individual is Ivri. Same root. Ayin, Veit, Resh, Avar. The Hebrew people are those who pass through. Who pass through from Ur all the way to the promised land. Who pass through the waters of judgment at the Red Sea into the promised land. Those that pass through difficulties and trials to redemption. You see, David's not just telling him to pass on. He's inviting Ittai to pass on with them, to become one man, to fight for the same land, to fight for the same plan with us, essentially Hebrew with us. You may be a Gittite, and that doesn't change. Ittai never became a Jew, but as a Gittite, he was invited to be one who passes on through with God's people in support of what God says. See, I want to tell you a quick story. I want to do this because so many of you have been asking the questions. How do we witness to a specific group of people in this manner? As if we haven't been telling you the entire time. There is no hidden revelation to this. We are telling you exactly what the Bible says. How to do this for Gentiles. Start with actions, not words. There we go. Yeah. On, the, on October 13th, 2023. The day of rage. Uh, my brother Rob texted. He said, hey, there's a memorial service uh, going on at a synagogue. And in our house... We have a strictly uh, support Jew policy. It doesn't matter how much it costs. doesn't matter what it takes. We will drop everything to support the Jewish people. So we said, of course, we'll go. What we, did not, what we didn't know is that the rabbi there had been praying. He'd been reaching out to everybody just so that he can have enough men to have a proper Shabbat service. That's a, that's a commandment to them, just so he can achieve that commandment. You want to know who shows up to help him? He was afraid that the Jewish people would not show up because it was the day of rage. You want to know who shows up to help him fulfill his commandment? Some Gentiles, some Gittites in our house. He began to speak, and, and we went there because there's a friend of Miranda who she, who she, went to, who she uh, works with in the JCC her name is Yafit. She's an Israeli Jew whose brother was killed in the attacks. We went there to support her. And when we got there, the rabbi stood up and said, this is a sorrowful time in Israel, but we will have joy now because God commands us to have joy on the Shabbat. We heard the testimony of an Israeli woman who lost her brother. He was trying to help people in the streets and Hamas gunned him down. We heard the testimony of another Jew there whose cousins are still currently held as hostages in, Hama, in Gaza. We heard their stories. And then the rabbi gets up and he preaches one of the most fiery sermons I have ever heard. His eyes ablaze. And he says, this has happened. And this continues to happen. 
Because us as Jewish people are promised a land and we have a plan of redemption. And our response now must be that we stand on the promises that the Tanakh has given us. And we will ultimately reach our plan of redemption if we continue to stand. Oh, I was moved. He began to ask everybody, how are you going to stand with Israel? Are you going to perform mitzvot? Who's going to wear tefillin? Who's going to study Torah more? I was moved in my soul as a Gentile. That led me to go up to that rabbi. And I looked him right in the face. I said, Rabbi, i got something to say to you. And I don't expect a response. I just want you to know that I am here with you as a Gentile. And I have to thank you for what your people have done for my life. Because without you and your people suffering for thousands of years, me, a Gentile, would never get the chance to see the light of Torah and Tanakh. I would never get to know about Rashi, Rambam, Radak, Ramban, Akiva, and so many of your fathers that have blessed me. He looked at me intently and he said, son, who are you and where are you from? I said, I'm just a Gentile who, who is who has been moved by the God of Israel. I'm moved. And he began to ask questions, more questions. Well, why don't you convert? And I said, no, Rabbi. No, I, there's no need. It's beautiful that God has arranged this way because I am a, get, I am a get, Gittite to you. I'm an Ittite to you. He says, what do you mean? I said, when, David Melech, when Melech David was in trial and the people of Israel was in trial, it was the Gentiles who saw him as the rightful king and decided to stand with the Jewish people. I am here to stand with you and go with you into these trials. He said nothing. He said nothing. And he went to go into a corner and I watched him. And, 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 and you could feel the spirit of God on a man and I watched him go into a corner and begin to pray to Adonai. I don't know what he was praying, but I know that he was moved by Adonai. Last night, when we were studying for this message, he sends me an email. At the very moment that we were typing the portion of the slide that is the Atai Doctrine, he emailed. He emails me, he says, Justin, I am moved by your love and your standing with our people. I want to pronounce a blessing on you in the name of Adonai for generations to come. You see, I'm going to say this. I've always heard that there'd be more spitting and cursing, but that's not what we have found. No. We have found that when you start with the right part of the book of God's revelation, and you articulate that, and you stand on it and take it in as a conviction, it always results in Jews wanting to know why, and them being perplexed, and them wanting to know why. This is how you minister from the right end of the book. We are trying to use our time well. And clearly, we can only hold you here so long. But can you tell we have something to say to you? I want to give you an improvement on the Atai Doctrine. We're going to close in Isaiah 49. And I want you to know that this has meant many things to people through the years. God spoke to Hudson Taylor out of this. God spoke to a Jew that I love named Art Cates that's now with Messiah out of this. God spoke to the Apostle Paul out of this. But originally, as I God spoke, I don't want to put my name in that sentence. It should have started with me way down low. God spoke to me out of this and it determined 
where we're aiming on the map that determine everything. But originally, Isaiah 49 is written in the tenor of the voice of a conversation between Yahweh and Messiah. Okay? Uh, Messiah is the embodiment of Israel. So, Messiah and Israel are interchangeable with each other in the same way that unfortunately our weekend at Bernie's president represents our nation. Except with Messiah, it's a perfect representation and it's Israel that has to catch up to his character. Let's speak Isaiah 49.3. I tried to do this in, in the 12 minutes. And he said to me, this would be the father speaking to the son. This would be the covenant name of God speaking to the glorified Messiah. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. But I, the Messiah, said, I've labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord in my recompense with my God. I'm not going to draw this out for you, but you can understand how the initial period of Israel's redemption as Messiah appeared doesn't look as successful as you would hope. Y'all feel me here? We have a worldwide audience, and I, I, I'm hoping you can read between those lines without me explaining that. Verse 5. And now... The covenant name of God. Now Yahweh says, He who formed me, Messiah, from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of Yahweh, and my God has become my strength. He, the covenant name, saying to Messiah, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. The cry of the Messiah is for Israel. And it was God's infinite wisdom that said, we're going to do that. Because I said it, and my name's attached to it. That's, that's a given, but that's too small of a thing. Hey, Messiah, I'm going to do more with you than just that. Don't, what come, come, don't let what comes later remove what precedes it. I want to talk to you about how to improve the Atai Doctrine. Pick up with me in verse 22. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations, the Gentiles, and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their arms, though your sons are Israelis, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings, shall be your foster fathers and their queens, your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down and lick the dust of your feet. Then you, Israel, will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me 
shall not be put to shame. The only thing better that Ittai could have done is said, David, I bow before your feet. I want to kiss the dust. It is now my job to carry your sons and daughters into what God has said will happen. Now, Ittai didn't say that in words, but he did command a third of Israel's armies and he was obedient to David for the rest of his life. And he did carry out all that he could do physically to see the promise given to David come to pass. The whole Bolkin Bow project, just so that you know, all of one association Europe, I'm going to walk to the map, i got a couple minutes, is to place people on the edge of the Middle East. So that their children can be raised up to go into the Middle East and teach Muslims to love the God of Israel, agree with the plan of Israel, and carry Jewish captives back to Jerusalem to fulfill the plan of God. More than the anti-doctrine, Israel is our target but the way that we reach that target is every passage we said has also to do with dispersion of Israel and the regathering. And I wish I could tell you that process is over, but it's not. Not according to the prophets. And we want to prepare now with the Ittai doctrine and the Isaiah 49 improvement to be where they will need us to be. And carry them on our shoulders to the destiny that God says they have. Can you have enough vision to think beyond this particular political crisis? Can you think into the future and see how God is positioning us? So the great question that stirred my heart. Can the prey be taken from the mighty? Or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? I saw that is the Islamic nations. And I want to free sons of Ishmael trapped under Islam too. That's who's going to carry Jews on their shoulders. But what a daunting task. For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, Israel. And I will save your children. We have to close. I want to give you a progress report. We've raised within LCM since the conference our first $95,000. It's amazing because the church has never been broker. The one association's never been broker. You have already given all many times and God still enabled you to scrape together $95,000 to help fund this project. The sale of the townhome that Judah owns and I live in is about to happen. Brothers in this church purchased it at full market value and probably more than market value and agreed to let us live in it because we still need a place to live. Which will bring in another $145,000. We are going one way or another to sell the kibbutz that Judah, Nick, and Peyton live in and Nick owns. 
that will bring in something more. We are going to sell all trucks, all cars, and that will bring in something more. The churches of the One Association are helping. They're working on offerings right now. Indonesia has already sent one. Remnant has already sent one. The other churches are calling going, we will meet this task with you. The Masseys are in the middle of a purchase of a house right now. Arising is called many times to say, we have to make sure that we share all of these things because it's one team and one mission. And we say yes and amen. amen. We currently have our eyes on a dwelling in Romania. We're not positive yet. Our men were willing to go and sleep on the floor. But we have our eyes on a dwelling in Romania. I wish it wasn't so expensive, but these are ancestral dwellings there. The purchase price is $340,000 and it still needs to be built out on the inside. But it'll house 17 to 23 people, which is the number of people we're sending, at least on day one. So in Italy and in Romania, on the edge of the Middle East, $45 flights from Jerusalem, we will be there in the spring of this next year. We're not there yet. We don't know how we're going to meet all of these totals. We just know that God wants it to be done. And this is not a fundraising message. What I'm trying to tell you is the Itai doctrine requires practical action. If you've ever been on the fence about any of these things, get off of the fence and take the boldest steps you can. We're inviting all of the one association to do the same. And they are. We're going to rise in unity to get this done. I think... We have two minutes and 38 seconds. If we could invite the worship team here. I'm going to give this to Justin and Judah to close. That way it's not my fault it went over two hours. <laughs> We're going to close with some concluding statements. And understand that where I stand right now, I feel like if this was the last message I ever preached... If I feel like I went and died today, I will die knowing that I spoke the words of the living God to you. My conscience is clear. We're going to close with two slides and some concluding statements. The redemptive plan of God is dependent upon the existence of the people of Israel and their salvation in the land of Israel. The name of God, meaning his reputation, character, and attributes are bound to the promises made regarding to the people, place, and plan laid out in the Tanakh and the Newer Testament. The nation of Israel in the Bible and the nation of Israel in the world today are the same people, the same place, and have the same plan. The next slide. The three pillars of the Itai doctrine in Isaiah 49. The promises of God on our shoulders. As the covenant God lives, it is out of reverence for the covenantal name of God that we support the promises of God to Israel. His name is linked to the promises that he has made. As my Lord the King lives, it is out of reverence for Messiah that we support the promises of God to Israel. Jesus is the King of the Jews first and foremost. His kingship is linked to the destiny of the Jewish people. There also your servant will be. It is out of reverence for the covenant God and the Messiah that we are compelled to stand with the people of Israel and the physical land of Israel because they are the apple of his eye and the recipients of the promises. I want to share with you today, if any of this is not ingrained in your soul, 
if you, if you have a disagreement in your soul about this, or if there's any confusion, there's anything that you don't understand about what we shared today, it's not because it's unclear. It's not because it's not scriptural. It's because you have failed in your discipleship to take the weapons of old that have been given to you and have been given to you at this time. The time is coming where these things are going to be tested more and more in us. And I hear the words of the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 12, verse 5, that if you stumble in safe country, how will you fare in the thickets by the Jordan, where there are lions who roar where there is no prey? Now is the time to sure up your foundation. I'm calling on every man and woman now and in the One Association to sure up your foundation through discipleship and take the weapons of old that have been given to you and go to war. When I came to LCM, I was a five-point Calvinist. Thought myself to be a champion of the gospel. But I saw a conviction in a man that was, I will stand on the word of God and what it actually says. And that became my conviction. And then the plan of God became my conviction. And there are men and women in this church that it is becoming your conviction. And you are standing like Ittai is standing. Now is the time to sure up your foundation through discipleship and get these things in your soul. You need to understand that it is not a gospel to elevate 27 books out of the Bible out of the previous 37. That is not the gospel. It is not the gospel to focus on one facet of God's redemptive plan. It is the gospel to have God's redemptive plan, the man, the land, and the the plan of Israel in its entirety that has blessed you. If you're shaky on that, now is the time to sure up your foundation because the day is coming where God will hold no man accountable or he will hold no man unaccountable based on ignorance or based on I just didn't know. God will hold each of us accountable to the truths we have been given through the men that he has given us in this time and in this place. It is our responsibility and our obligation to take in these truths and stand on them. Sound booth, you can leave the lights on. This is a family meeting and for the sake of your gluteus maximus, please stand with us. Why you hang out with me? I'm proud to stand next to you. Again, this is a family meeting. For the few in the room who are new here, we treat you like family, whether you regard yourself as family or not. Come back three times and you're our family. So both to you and for the few brave souls who make it to this point in the recording, there's some things that I want you to hear me say. I had to step on a literal snake to get into the church building this morning, which was a bit of a fun homiletic. It was between me and Mr. Ballou and the path to reach the pastoral office, and it had to die to be able to reach the fellowship of the righteous. I'm not going to turn to another passage because I think you have enough to think about at this very moment. But you should be aware that Genesis 3 is about the fall of all humanity. And it is about a serpent that would strike our heel, but would be crushed by the Hebrew singular he, meaning Messiah. Yes. Genesis 10, oddly enough, has been 
a passage used by distorted and deceptive, deceptive people to divide humanity. But it was actually about the union of all of the sons of Noah under the tent of Shem. Yes. We sit here as more than 23 nations, North America, Central America, South America. In the continent of Africa, we have men represented of the very extreme north, the very extreme south, the east, and the west coast of the continent of Africa. Innumerable nations in this room from all of the parts of East and West Europe and the Orient. We are unified because we have been brought into the tent of Shem. Yes. Genesis 12 is about a further specifying of the redemptive plan of God that not only through Shem, but through a specific descendant of Shem, Abraham's family, all nations would be blessed. And it's going to tell you that in today's message, there was one thing that was new. A singular item that has not been preached and taught for decades. That was purely the Hebrew behind David telling Ittai to pass on. Being an inference that he is a part now of the Hebrew people because of his actions, although he remains ethnically a distinct Gentile. We've been preaching and teaching these things for well over two decades, and truthfully, it goes far beyond that. If something in this was new to you, if you could not delineate the electro slides, what do you think we were talking about during the conference with summoning the weapons of old to be able to stand in the next generation? Guys, we are a family, and I'm speaking to a recording now as well that is my family. When you think of the One Association pastors, you think of revered men, and I think of them as the most exalted figures. But they are quite literally my family. I learned to call Mike Hutchinson my uncle long before I had a relationship with any blood relative or cousin in this city. He helped to raise me. He corrected me and confronted me to my face when I was that difficult teenager. Students in this room ordained ministers hear what I am saying and this is not to be demeaning this is just a sobering recognition of what we must have our one job is to oversee the souls of men according to the doctrine that the Tanakh in the New Testament actually lay out if any ounce of this message was new to you and when I say new I don't mean that you're vaguely familiar with it I mean that you could teach it without calling us for the notes then you have been lazy in your study. It is all too easy to study a little bit in the week the areas that you believe you can easily preach on. But if you do not understand the actual message of the Bible, we are failing in our one job to oversee the souls of people according to the real doctrine of the Word of God. Guys, I know these men. I know what we did last Sunday. The challenge for them was the amount of things that had to be cut out because you can do this from any book in the Bible. Pastors and disciples, it's time that we pick up the book of Genesis and start reading from the right direction and learn to view our times through the holistic lens of the word of God. It's not a mistake that we went through Jeremiah. Jeremiah was able to prophesy about Israel's rebellion and need for repentance but also stand in covenant participation with their future while going into exile with them. 
We don't need any more Josephus prophesying from outside of the walls. We need Jeremiah's who are standing inside the walls. What these brothers presented from Isaiah 49 is building on years of preaching and teaching. The only thing better than what Ittai did is to look at a son who is destined because of his national identity and say, you may have forgotten it, but I have not forgotten God's destination for you. Come here, get on my back, and I will carry you to the finish line. Proverbs 24 says, if your strength falters in times of trouble, how small is your strength? But Jeremiah 12 suggests that just and just referenced, the one association has been given strength for a reason. But we are now learning what it is to have your strength tested during times of trouble. And this is the smallest beginning of the things that are ahead for Israel and for the world at large. It's time to learn to use the weapons of old. I have two imperative homework assignments for you. And we're going to go into a victorious time in worship. Amen. Get with Nolan and Tara, who have diligently for years taken the time to record the prophecies that come forth from this body. One specifically, this last Sunday, its substance was about the way in which God is speaking to our churches. Let the spirit or let your ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is LCM, and this is everybody who took the time to hear this. It is time for the body of Christ to walk the path of crucified Messiah. That is what the entirety of the book of Revelation is about, is the church that is the body of Christ walking out what the Jewish Messiah did during Israel's time of trouble. As we sit here today... Our Father is speaking to us about being crucified like Ittai to stand with his people. Hey, this is not in theory anymore. Some of you will lose your children. And I don't mean just seeing them planted in foreign lands. I mean you will watch your children die for the gospel. Hallelujah. To our detractors, we'll see what happens when times get tough. Yeah. But the families of this house and of the one association will spill our blood for what is right. No keyboard warrior can change the facts of that. Your second piece of homework. Sit down with your families and begin to contemplate and more importantly, devote heartfelt prayer as a family about the life that you're living in light of sitting at the feast of Abraham with a Jewish Messiah and Abraham himself at the table. What is it that you will have to speak about at that great feast how will you relate to the author of the nation that has brought you the word that you hold, that has brought you salvation and the proclamation of the gospel through 12 disciples who carried it to the nations? I want you to begin to pray and consider what it will look like in eternity when you sit with every Hebrew man of faith of old that brought you where you are. Because our destination is to sit at a table with Abraham if we live this life well. Well, your days and the years that you're allotted, whether it's 40, 60, or 80, look like Ittai. Or have you given tacit approval to things that you know are right, but you would have no substance to discuss with them at the Feast of Abraham? 
begin to review the things that God has spoken to this body about our actual destiny and begin in your own prayer life to consider what eternity will look like in a Jewish kingdom with Jewish men who risked and gave all to see the gospel reach a Gentile world. When we sing this next song, this was written by men who've been engaging in these principles and can teach them without notes. After spending just a little bit of time praying and interacting with what it will look like to meet the God of Israel that is every one of our destination, not just in a feeling, but in the fullest reality of him and his glory. So as we begin to worship and we sing this song, don't let it just be lyrics. Don't let it just be a proclamation. Recognize you're going to meet the very king of Israel and he's going to ask you how you related to his people, how you spent your life knowing that the gospel came to you because of the sacrifice of Jewish men of old. As we worship, let's taste of the age of the kingdom to come. There are so many things that are distractions in this room. You're looking at your watch, it's getting late. You had a meeting you were supposed to be at. Forget all of that for just a moment and think about the fact that you get to meet with the King of Israel whom you will spend eternity with. And as we worship, let our resolve be stilled, steeled. That these weapons of old are not going to be things that we're aware of in a general sense that every one of you would be able to sit down and boldly declare from Genesis to Revelation what the actual Bible is about and stop being as lazy to rely on someone else to tell you what the gospel is, but engage in the word to the extent where you know for certain what you must do in spite of great suffering. Sound booth. Just for the effect, let's dim the lights because it seems to help us engage with the King of Kings. Justin is about to pray for us. And at the very first strum of the guitar, as if you were about to meet him in the flesh, begin to cry out to that son of David. Begin to call to that God of Israel. Begin to rally your soul towards the actions that you must take in the days ahead and the generational sacrifice it will take for us to complete our work with the gospel that has been brought to us by Israel, but must go back to Israel in the end. Father, us Gittites are assembled here and we are zealous for your name. We are zealous for your holiness. We are zealous for your people, zealous for your land, zealous for your plans. Lord, right now, we worship you with everything that we have. Lord, we arouse ourselves in our zeal towards your holiness because you are the great king over all the earth. 